And now, another cup of... The London Fog. Hello. Welcome. This is The London Fog. We're back again. Yep, with another. you lost us. I know. With another <laughs> We're just keeping episode. you on your toes. <laughs> on your toes and honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. You know, you can't expect weekly updates from two women going through very busy times of their lives, you know? Yeah, we're both moving again. Actually, I feel like I we, we had this conversation about this time last year where we were like, sorry, guys, we're both moving. It's I happening know. again. And it's <laughs> happening again. So Leah's picking up and moving again. I'm, once again, just doing another inner city move because I work for a company that's going to pay me better housing prices. So got to go where the money is. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> Now, I'm going to be honest, uh, since this is like honesty hour right now, apparently. Oh, no. I I know. um, You should be worried. I feel like mine today, my little storytelling, is going to come across like one of those drunk history episodes. Because I have been fighting this migraine for the last two days, and it's killing. So well, that can make this a really popular episode because those are really popular. I know. <laughs> I hope so. Hopefully, it'll be quite as funny or something because my little brain formulating a sentence takes so much brain power. And frankly, I'm just sitting here with my eyes closed. I'm not even going to be looking at my notes, so you know it's going to be a shit show. I'm nervous. Light- you should go first then, so that we end on a high note. <laughs> Deal, because um, frankly, looking at the backlighting, and I've turned it all the way off on my iPad, is like splitting my head. But other than that, do you have any happy news? <laughs> I just thought I'd give people like a little heads up. What has happened in the news lately? Well, it seems like that's happy. I mean, <laughs> exactly happy news. I. I think people overall for the last couple of weeks, there has been a little bit of like loosening or, you know, of rules and regulations. So that's kind of good, kind of not in some places, depending, (laughs) depending, but overall, I think it's like, frankly, kind of nice to, you know, be able to, I don't know, go to, I'm going to get my hair cut. Let's celebrate that. Yeah. I'm going to get my hair cut. I want to so bad. In a week and a half. <laughs> Mind you, I had to call my girl in Texas. They opened on like May 8th or something. She was already, I had called her within two hours of her being, you know, reopened and she was already booked until the 28th. That's how bad hair can go in just mm. two months. So, but I am in the queue. I just, I mean, it's not even a week and a half. It's eight days. From when we're making this recording. Uh, you're making me really jealous. We need to move on. Um, <laughs> I I have kind of good news. Okay. If you follow the royal family uh, Instagram mm-hmm. recently, let me see if I can find the date. Oh, yesterday. Uh, they posted their recipe for fruit scones, which traditionally mm-hmm. are served at Buckingham Palace every summer. It says that every year at garden parties across royal residences, over 27,000 cups of tea, 20,000 sandwiches, and 20,000 slices of cake are consumed 
and these fruit scones. So, um, anyway, if you are looking for something to do while you're stuck at home and baking like everyone is, go to the Royal Family Instagram and make some fruit scones from the Royal Pastry Chefs. That's amazing. I have a, a quick shout out for my friend, John, who is a listener. Um, <laughs> John was uh, has been making these singing videos while he's been in quarantine. And are you ready for this? The BBC found him through Instagram and he did a audio segment on, I think it was BBC one. Oh no, BBC Oxford and, um, of his covers and they interviewed him and all I hear from Texas, uh, he had this interview with the BBC saying like, Hey, you're awesome. So fun to find your music. So John Stephen Watkins is his Instagram handle. And you can go. John with an H? It's Stevens with a P-H-E-N. John Stephen Watkins. Yes. I found him. And you can listen to his episode is up on the BBC Oxford podcast, radio podcast. So and it was like a, like a decent segment. I think he got like 25 minutes of airtime. Nice. Yeah, it was really cool. So uh, that'll that be my happy good news. My happy good news. <laughs> Actually, I think I remember you posting about some of his singing earlier Yeah, well. like he got really into it during, you know, COVID. He's been doing stuff for a while. He's done some covers with some uh, American Idol winners here in the States. Mm-hmm. And, but how this one like went so far, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how like the BBC was all like, mm, he sings all this American music and he's an American guy, but let's go and interview him. That's why we love, that's why we love the Brits. They're all accepting. Yes, we do. So now we're moving into our topic about we're just doing some awesome Brits. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, we, we didn't really have a like more set topic than that. Just like somebody interesting who just like, is interesting yeah, that you want to talk about person because I feel like sometimes our topics are so not so specific but this is definitely the one that I'm gonna share is one that I've gone into for a while but I wasn't really sure where it would fit so I haven't oh no what if we have the same one now I'm always going to be nervous even though it took like a year and a half for that to happen it's like I my know. greatest fear now. Maybe we need to have like a no, friend you, you, that we you text me, our topics to. <laughs> we probably should, but you gave me already like just like your two keywords or something, and mine is totally not that. So we're okay. we're good. We're okay. good because that's like my greatest fear. Okay, <laughs> I know. Well, that was no, it's true. It kind of was a bummer. I was like, oh man. Well, <laughs> luckily I had that backup one. I, <laughs> Hope everybody has a, just a real short cup of tea, which tonight I am sipping on a little cozy time tea because my head hurts. Isn't so it like a hundred degrees there? I'm surprised you're drinking tea. Like here it's like dreary and rainy, so it kind of makes sense. <laughs> but I can't help it. You know, like something about, you know, like that true British, you're in a panic. What do you do? You make a cup of tea. World's falling apart. Make a cup of tea. You feel like shit. Make a cup of tea. You know, like... Let's just all make a cup of tea. And on that note, while and you're on sitting, that note, go ahead, Kate. <laughs> I will be talking about Ernest Shackleton. Oh, 
Oh my gosh, I read a really good book about him when I was 10. Okay, keep I know. going. He's so, <laughs> so good. And I did open my eyes because I don't want to do him not a decent justice, but let's be honest, it's going to be kind of like drunk history. Um, so he is a British citizen, but he grew up, he was born in Ireland and his father really held to that for a long time. So I'm going to say Shackleton is Irish British. (laughs) You know how like we have like, I'm a Polish American, you're a blah, blah, blah. There you go. He's an Irish British man. Um, he was born February 1874 and, uh, to his father, Henry and his mother, I believe his mother's name is Henrietta Sophia. She had like four names. So Henry and Henrietta, and they actually decided to get married. What were they thinking? Too much, but, and then they called him Ernest, but that's besides the point. (laughs) So... Long story made short. He tries to go to school and pretty much the story of Shackleton is he will not be held to anybody's expectations and he's not going to do what anybody else says. He wants to live this an exciting life. So he tries to go to school. At age 13, he goes, goes to Delwich College in Southeast London and pretty much never worked because he was bored by his studies. I didn't learn much. I, he did kind of like geography, but he said it wasn't very interesting. And pretty much his teachers were all like, he's pretty spoiled. He doesn't do much. He kind of has a taste for poetry, but that's about it. So by the end of his um, like third term, he decides to not go back and his parents are all like, okay, we can't, we can't keep doing this. So three terms, he's 16 and he, his parents help set him up. If you're not going to go to school, then you have to find an apprenticeship, right? It's that period. It's that time you have to then get some kind of skill set. So his father finds him a mercantile um, marine ship and is all like, well, you can go and learn some apprenticeship about sailing vessels. And he's like, all right, well, that seems kind of interesting. I'll do that. So he starts learning about the ship, gets pretty interested. And his, he then looks at his parents and says, Hey, I want to, I want to go on one of these like ventures out into sea. And at the time he's only 16, but they kind of go, all right, guess you got to learn it sometime. So he goes, he does pass examinations to become a second mate. And then he becomes a first mate two years later. And he learns kind of a little bit of boating. Uh, I don't think it's called boating. I think it's called sailing. I apologize for (laughs) all of our listeners that are really into boats and sails and and skiffs and and ships. (laughs) Yeah. Gifts and whatever no else they're called. Listening to this, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're doing their thing. He is learning all about the ships. He comes back, and but while he was out, he had made a a friend named Longstaff, who was impressed by Shackleton's keenness and kind of excitement for learning things about ships, and he decides hey, I'm going to go on an um, expedition 
on my ship called Discovery, and you're invited. Yay! Uh, yay! First <laughs> expedition, and he's young. I mean, this is 1901, so not very old. He's 27. And so he's like, all right, to make it kind of like official, he'd never worked in the military, but to go on an expedition with on Longstaff's ship, he had to enter the Royal Navy Reserve, which he entered in as a sub-lieutenant or something of that nature. But um, he never really worked with the military, like with the Navy. So I didn't really understand that part too much, but. So, um, Longstaff heads up this, uh, discovery expedition, which is also called the British National Arctic Expedition. So it's the first chance to go out to, to see, he goes, makes a decent amount of friends. They learn a lot about what it takes to go that far south. And I kind of want to like point out the fact that at this time, point something about the Antarctic was so foreign and we're in this very much this discovery mode hence the name of the ship um you know it would only be a handful of years you know decades later that we'd be like chasing for the moon but this is kind of like their big chase was who can get to Antarctica um at the time they were trying to beat out um other nationalities I think there were some Swiss and Russians that had already gone out that way. We're always fighting with the Russians. The I know. Antarctic. <laughs> we want to go. Everybody wants to like beat it, claim it, and say that they've done it first. So um, this was kind of like a big launch. There was a lot of ships going down to Antarctica. So um, he ends up traveling uh, under the the expedition was led by a man named Robert Falcon Scott who um, in his own right is a very exciting um, adventurer, explorer, and things were going really well. They were doing a lot of uh, journal writing and kind of expediting, you know, how quickly could they go down there, making maps, how, what does it look like, what can we do down there? But very quickly, uh, Shackleton just had this way about him. You know, he never played by the rules. He didn't want to be that usual schoolboy. So he just was a charmer. He was pretty nice. He he liked to put on little like mixers and and crew shows. So if you could whistle or if you could sing or you know dance a funny dance. I know it sounds weird, but it's true. You know, anything to keep them entertained. And slowly this started to win over the crew. So although it's not really, um, we're not sure if it's factual, why Scott decided at some point he's all like, Shackleton's got to go back home. Um, If it was because he started to say that Shackleton was just working too hard and that he ought not to risk further hardship in his present state of health. And so kind of, booted him off after two years at sea and said, you got to go home, go back to England. Um, You can't be here really because I think Scott was losing control of the command. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Just because Scott's a grump doesn't mean you have to let the partiers go. So um, there was nothing that Shackleton could do. 
he gets sent back to England, which he's all like, well, this is a really big bummer. He's now like 30. So he's all like, I'm going to try doing this and that. Like he writes for a magazine. He becomes a secretary at the geographical society down to, you know, he tries to sell, you know, this and that he tried to, he even tried to become a, a shareholder of transporting Russian troops home from the far East and you know, <laughs> trying to figure anything out and nothing came of any of these things. Overall, he was like, I mean, I don't want to label him a failure, but I mean, he, he really wasn't good at just like regular life. So <laughs> he just starts to get a whole bunch of debts. Of course, at this time he gets back and he's 30 and he looks kind of good and he has an exciting story to tell. So, I mean, on April 9th, 1904, he marries Emily Dorman and they have kids, you know, but I mean, he, he tried everything, you know, he's going to be a politician. He's going to do this and that. And it just didn't work. So after a while, he's all like, well, this isn't working. And Scott had come back and had been recognized by Britain as this amazing explorer and even wrote like a novel of his, um, you know, expedition and kind of says, oh, well, Shackleton just got so sick and he was weak and begged me to go home. And Shackleton was all like, that freaking didn't happen. <laughs> so <laughs> to almost, you know, co go back in, in Scott's face and also he wasn't really doing great at anything else. He started to approach people while he was working for the Royal Geographical Society saying, I want to go back to the Arctic for an expe uh, expedition and I want to, you know, label it as the British Arctic expedition and, you know, figure it out from there. Okay. He gets some people to pay into it. He goes out on the Nimrod. They go out and, you know, start by, you know, <laughs> his idea was, well, I've never really done this. So I'm going to go to the exact same place as where the discovery was, where Scott was and, you know, use that base area. Well, he gets out there and Scott's already there. He already got another expedition. And so that's been used up. So they go to a different place. They can't stay there because of so much ice. And they end up just kind of pretty much end up going like a mile or two away from Scott to do their, you know, discovery work. So uh, this is where he makes some of his like best, I'm going to call best friends. There's Frank Wilde, Eric Marshall, and Jameson Adams. And they, at that time, pulled um, the Great Southern Journey, uh, as it was kind of nicknamed, where they reached the farthest new point south and, uh, and only missed like the center of the pole by less than 100 miles, which was um, something that had never been done. So... They said that it was a great experience other than the fact that they got so far out. They went too far and Shackleton hadn't really figured out how long it would take them to get back. So they slowly <laughs> started to run out of food. So, um, but Shackleton was one of those guys, like his men always came first. So he gave him all of his food and, and they, they get back. Shackleton goes back to the UK. He's a hero. He 
um, publishes about his expedition called the heart of the Atlantic. And, um, everything is great. He's a hero. And so he then goes around. So because he doesn't really have a job, like, and he's not hired by the Navy, he's not hired by the government to do these things. He's just an explorer. So the only thing he has to make money off of when he comes back is just giving lectures. He tries to pick up jobs, but everybody kind of goes, well, what are we going to do with, you know, just Shackleton? I mean, he has no real skills. (laughs) skills. <laughs> so, so he gives a lot of lectures and, um, King Edward at this, uh, time, King Edward the seventh, um, makes him commander of the Royal Victorian order and makes him a knight. So he's now Sir Ernest Shackleton and, uh, you know, everything seems to be going well, well, Shackleton starts getting anxious again. This, you know, I'm, I'm really tired of just putting on lectures and he tries to become like the spokesman of like a tobacco company and then nothing ever, never works out if it's not an expedition for a Shackleton. So once again, he spearheads, I need to go back and do another expedition. And this is the one that we all kind of uh, know it's the Imperial Transarctic Expedition that was from 1914 to 1917. And interesting enough, before he sets sail for this expedition, he, it's like people would put in, let's say like your resume, right? And he'd get them, he'd look it over and be like, yeah, I need a scientist, I need a doctor, I need this guy, I need that guy. But instead of just like, oh yeah, this guy went here and you know, he has a a medical degree from this place. He would really ask them interesting questions. They'd all have to come in and interview in person. And he would ask him things like, can you whistle? (laughs) Tell me about your mother and like interesting, weird questions. And people never really understood why he asked. And pretty much it was, well, we're going to spend a lot of time at sea. So we all have to like each other. And get along. That's a good point. Right? And especially for what's about to happen. So pretty much he comes up with this idea that there's going to be two ships on this expedition. One is the Endurance and the other is the Aurora. And and so the Endurance would carry the, the main group to the Weldon Sea and aim for like a certain bay of some sort. And then they would cross the continent. And then the second ship, Aurora, would pick them up. And then they would go home and once again be heroes. Um, but that is not what happened, as we all know. <laughs> or maybe you don't. So stay tuned. We'll keep it short, though, because my head hurts. Um, The Endurance makes it, they always have like a pit stop in like South Georgia, get their supplies, and they head towards the Weldon Sea. It's December 5th um, of 1914. Great. They're going. All of a sudden, there becomes like a lot of, of ice floats. And something that he hadn't ever, you know, he'd seen before, but not to this amount. And by January 19th of 1915, um, the endurance gets stuck in one of these ice floats. So they're all like, okay, well, that's a bummer. Um, 
as Shackleton goes, well, we got to get out of the ship. I mean, we're stuck here, but we're just wedged. I mean, nothing's wrong with the ship. So they kind of take time going, like having a little camp that's probably right outside the boat and also, you know, into the boat. Well, by, you know, February, he's pretty stuck and they go, all right, well, they wait until September for the ice to thaw because his idea is the ice will thaw and then we will continue on their merry way. September is springtime in the Arctic, apparently. Didn't know that. Um, Learn something (laughs) new every day. Uh, The ice starts to break and when it breaks, it puts extreme pressure on the boat and it slowly starts taking water. So uh, by, and because everything is frozen, it takes an eternity uh, the the boat is slowly sinking. So by October, end of October, uh, Shackleton's like, we have to abandon ship. It's going to go down. And it takes until November 21st, 1915, that it finally slips completely underneath the water. So here's this party. They're still on an ice float. Let's just remember that. Um, and they have been for quite some time. They finally take the lifeboats and are all like, you know what? We're just going to have to make it to Elephant Island, big island that they were trying to head to, which is 346 miles away in lifeboats. And you're going to take your exhausted crew who has now floated, not been on real land. They, they, it takes them five days. They finally make it to Elephant Island. And when they step on that ground for the first time, it is the first time they've been on solid ground in 497 days. Yeesh. Yeah. So over a year, you've literally gone nowhere and you've floated on a piece of ice. So your life could get worse. At least I've, you know, gone on a walk around the block. COVID. This <laughs> is <laughs> COVID related. So pretty much they load up then another boat. Shackleton takes kind of the guys that are starting to make like a little bit of like a ruckus. And he's all like, you guys are coming with me. We got to go to this whaling station. They cross over the water. It's, it's crazy. It's busy. They get caught in a hurricane during it. And finally, <laughs> I it just, everything that could go wrong with this goes wrong. They finally make it to land they leave three guys with the boats and say, you, you, and you, you're going to come with me and we're going to go over this 32 mile mountain trench that no one has ever done to get to the whaling station. Cause we can't get to it from this side. Finally get there. They finally get people to help them to first go back, pick up the other three and then go all the way back over and pick up the guys from, uh, the other side of elephant Island. They go and get all those guys just to then go take them back. They go to South Georgia. They then go back because the Aurora have the same problem. This has all been the endurance. Where the hell is the Aurora at this time? It's on the other side of Antarctica in their own crap that has been blown uh, and driven out to sea and unable to return. So it has been adrift this entire time and uh, goes back. They were not as lucky they had lost three lives, one of them including their commander, but had overall done pretty well. But out of that, Shackleton never lost one man with the endurance. And uh, he had wow. only lost the three on the Aurora. Yeah, no one died. And 
I think that's why we remember Shackleton. He comes back, there's World War, World War One. He tries to do some things. Doesn't really work out because nothing ever works out that isn't an expedition. Um, finally, comes back and he's like, you know what I got to do? Another expedition. But pretty much on the way there, he suffers heart attack after heart attack. And it, it just kind of comes to be known that all of the pressure that he put his heart under, all of these excursions out, um, and especially with the uh, endurance going down, it was just too much. And he, he had significantly weakened his heart. So um, he ends up suffering a fatal heart attack on January 5th, 1922. And, you know, he was never around anyway. So Emily was all like, you know what? You don't need to bring back his body, Britain. He's fine. Just bury him in South Georgia because he was there all the time. That was like the pit stop. So um, that is where Shackleton is buried. <laughs> and uh, everybody says that it's very fitting because uh, it's it's more of his style, standing lonely as an island far away from civilization, they had said. But interestingly, interestingly enough... On November 27th of 2011, as I had mentioned way before with his Nimrod first expedition, um, he had the friend uh, Frank Wilde. His ashes were uh, spread at the right side of Shackleton's gravesite, and a block stone was placed right next to Shackleton that said Frank Wilde, Shackleton's right-hand man. Oh, that's sweet. And that is Ernest Shackleton, just an interesting, an interesting man. <laughs> an interesting dude. <laughs> All right. Good. Now I can close my eyes. <laughs> Tell me a story. <laughs> you fall asleep during this. Obviously. I'm not going to fall asleep. It just light hurts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I am telling the story of James Barry, which doesn't help anyone because there's about 20 I don't know, probably 5 million British men for the course of history named James Barry. Yeah, <laughs> all kind of like famous of some sort. You know, that's why we know them. <laughs> yes. He was a surgeon, which there was also another James Barry who was a famous surgeon. So just for the record, it's Barry with an A. Um, so James Barry, we're going to start in medical school. So he goes to Edinburgh in November of 1809 to begin studies at in medical school. Um, he's short. He has delicate features. Um, people tried to block his application for his final exams because they thought that he was too young and was lying about his age. Um, so, but the Earl of Buchan, whoever that guy is, was um, a, a, yeah. He was a friend of James' uncle, who was also named James Barry, and a, and a friend of um, like one of the doctors at the medical school. So he persuaded them to let him take his final exams. So in 1812, he became an MD um, at the age of 22. I just want to say 1909 to 1812. That's three years. My husband is now finishing 10 years and will finally be done and can practice. But James Barry, immediately. Back in the day, I mean, medicine was so different. I mean, still bleeding arms at that point. Yeah. So immediately after he becomes 
a doctor, he um, decides, or I guess the examination is the Royal College of Surgeons of England. So then he decides to join the army. So he's a hospital assistant in the British army. Um, he like very quickly gets promoted and he becomes the assistant surgeon to the forces um, and is in the Royal Military Hospital in Plymouth. So after this, he then becomes posted to Cape Town in South Africa. Um, he becomes close friends with the governor of South Africa at that time. So this is 1816, um, who's G General Lord Charles Henry Somerset, um, because he is able to uh, treat Lord Charles's sick daughter. So he becomes really close friends with the governor, becomes his personal physician. Um, he become, he gets appointed the colonial medical inspector, um, which is like a jump even way above his military rank. It's great responsibility. He is like, he improves things for people in the Cape, in Cape Town, like significantly. He improves the sanitation and water systems. He improves conditions for um, enslaved people, prisoners, the mentally ill. He develops a sanctuary for the leper population. It's like, I feel like it makes it sound so long ago that there was like a significant leper population. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he also performed one of the first known successful c-sections in which both the mother and child survived um yeah which side note the the child was then named after her after him james barry munich mm. and the name was passed down through the family so there was actually like i don't know about a hundred years later a prime minister of south africa named james barry munich herzog and Love so he's named after this james barry um he often uh, I had a lot of enemies because he was always criticizing local officials and their handling of medical matters, but he was close friends with the governor. So basically he got to do whatever he wanted. Um, so then, you know, after, so he was there for about 10 years and then he gets posted to Mauritius. I don't know how to say that. It's somewhere in the Indian ocean. Okay. Um, <laughs> I skipped so, all the words I could say. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I would say I would try to skip it, but it, you know, kind of important. So he, gets post, he gets posted somewhere off the coast of Africa. Um, he actually so, gets um, in, he risks a lot of trouble because a year after he gets posted there, Somerset, who the, was the governor, has at this point gone back to England and goes, get becomes ill. So he actually goes absent without leave from the military to go back to England and treat Somerset. So he stays there. So he goes back to treat her. So he stays there or treat him. Sorry, I keep mixing that up. Um, he stays there for two years. He just like goes back to England, decides he's going to take care of his buddy, the governor, um, takes care of him for two years until he dies. So then the army just takes him back. <laughs> he doesn't get like in any sort of trouble, but they send him to Jamaica um, so he's been sent to the, I guess they didn't trust him in Africa you. anymore. Yeah. To a paradise um, island. <laughs> yeah. He becomes real. he's really known for like having a hot temper. So he, um, he clashes with a lot of the army surgeons. He 
is involved in a duel. He um, is almost court-martialed. He's arrested a few times for fighting. Um, he, I don't know. He's just not good at listening. He does what he wants. But everyone is like happy and they keep him in the military because he's such a good doctor. Um, so, uh, eventually he gets sent to, um, Corfu. He also gets visits Crimea. So this is in 1851. So Florence Nightingale is there. He gets in a big fight with Florence Nightingale. Basically, he's just always fighting with people. <laughs> he gets sent to Canada, and there he becomes the inspector general of the hospitals in Canada. And it's the same thing. He just changes everything the same way he did in South Africa. There, people get better food, better sanitation. Prisoners and lepers get better proper medical care. I don't know why nobody cares about the lepers except for James Perry. <laughs> but um, Soldiers and their families are treated better. So basically, everywhere he goes... Everywhere he serves in the British Empire, improvements are made to the sanitary conditions, the diet of the common soldier, underrepresented groups are finally treated with medical stuff. He was very outraged by unnecessary suffering, um, and he took a heavy-handed approach towards demanding improvements for poor and underprivileged. So he that's why he was often fighting with officials and other military officers. Um like I said, he was constantly arrested. Um, he was, he had a lot of like very modern views on nutrition, which is why, um, like he was so into the health and diet of the common soldier. He was actually vegetarian and he didn't drink at all, which is just like both very weird things for a man in the British military, right? Like in the 1800s, people were like, what's his deal? Um, and he had, this is side note, he had a beloved poodle named Psyche. Um, <laughs> so, fi- yeah, finally in 1859, they force him to retire uh, because he's getting old. He has ill health. Um, a few years after retirement, he, so he's in London. He's retired. A few years after retirement, he dies from dysentery. So this is when things get interesting. Um, Barry's last request, like, uh, before his death, he knew he was dying, he had dysentery, was that he wanted to be buried in the clothes that he died in. So, naturally, nobody does that. Of course, Uh, because (laughs) then everybody knows. (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) So, they... They have a charwoman who comes to that they send to the house to prepare his body for burial, wash his body, change his clothes. And it turns out that James Barry is a woman. Um, yes, I've been biting my tongue this entire time. I do, as soon as you said the first slip up of he, she, I went, Oh my gosh, I remember this in my, I had to take an LGBTQ, sorry if I got that out of order to anybody, um, class in in college. And this was one of the people that came up and I was like, in that time of age, how how could you go so long and no one know? Yeah. So it was like basically the longest that anyone had ever like been able to not like have people find out their sex. Um, 
It's amazing. So I know. So and not only that, but they're like she had a bunch of stretch marks on her stomach. So uh like they're pretty sure she had had a child. Um, I did not know that. Really? Yeah. So um so anyway, back to uh Back to the history. So, James Berry was born as Mary Ann Bulkley. Uh, or no, Margaret Ann, sorry. Her, her mother's name was Mary Ann. Um, they, nobody's quite sure exactly when she was born, um, but that's probably because there's a lot of documents faking ages later when... Okay. She was a man. Um, so basically, uh, her father was not great. Um, and and uh, her – so somebody, a brother, possibly a father, not totally sure, um, raped her when she was quite young. And so um, – she gave birth and had a sister name or a daughter named Juliana who was raised as her sister. Um, Holy Moses. Yeah. So she, um, her and her mom end up moving with, to her uncle James Barry's home in London. Um, and he was like an influential artist. He had a lot of really liberal friends and it was them who kind of helped Margaret to get this idea to pass as a man to enter medical school. So I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, we don't need to speculate too much on her gender or sex, but people are not totally sure. So there are some people like um, somebody who like, worked with her who thought that perhaps um dr barry was a hermaphrodite um not sure if she he or he was trans not sure if he was just if she when i was like i said i took that one class (laughs) now i'm an expert no not really um but that it was historically they're kind of considering it as probably the oldest uh, transgender, like historical figure. Not okay, yeah. yeah. So it, yeah, because what I read, being taught. Yeah, people weren't totally sure. I mean, I guess you can never be totally sure, but because right. uh, it, it could be possible that you know she just wanted to be a doctor and was like, yeah. "I'm going to do that." But you know, because there is a um, quote that she like wrote a letter to her brother when she was younger. And she said, if I were not a girl, I would be a soldier. So, you know, she had that idea when she was young as well. Um, So yeah, so her uncle's friends helped her to uh, pass as a man. So when she entered medical school, how old was she really? I don't, like I said, age is, age is unknown, but she was probably already 20, but they, um, had her pass for like 17 and then people thought she was lying and was actually 15, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so we're going to go back into heat, I guess. So for his whole life, he wore, um, like three inch platforms in his shoes so that he would seem taller. Okay. Um, 
And he, and people are saying like, that's why he had that reputation as being like so gruff and like ready to fight is because he was like, he didn't want people to think he was a woman. And like, that was like with his like high voice and being like slender and thin, you know, like Mm -hmm. that was a good way to like be masculine, I guess, in a very obvious way. Um, (laughs) So yeah. Um, Anyway, it's, it's kind of interesting because a lot of people are like, oh, like, like, this is what they focus on is the fact that he was a woman, but actually, like, he was a great doctor. Like I said, he had one of the first successful C-sections where both the mother and the child survived, like, and he did so much for, like, sanitation and everything, but then once this came out, people just, like, totally forgot that. And this was, like, a big scandal. Everyone famous during the time. I mean, Charles Dickens, like, wrote about it in the newspapers. Like, it was a big deal. Um, especially, like, I don't think not not only was he, like, Britain's first female doctor, it was also, like, in the military, you know? Um, so, yeah. Like I said, there's been a lot of controversy about motives and um you know things like that I guess so there's been novels written about him there's been plays written about him um I think they're like developing a biopic about him right now so we'll see what how they which direction they go with that um there it's funny there so there were actually rumors when he was in um Cape Town about him being gay, which was obviously at that time not approved, especially in the military. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that made people think that perhaps, you know, there were people who knew he was a woman, like that he was having an affair with somebody, but people seeing, like having caught them at their affair, assumed something else. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. There's just like a lot of mystery about it. Um, That's where I think maybe maybe more transsexual right because obviously it would be with a man and she's a he he's he's he was born female I don't know well these are all things I I mean I guess if he's trans then he is gay anyway we don't need to if we don't know what we're talking about we shouldn't so we apologize (laughs) to anybody we're yes um but yeah Anyway, so that is Dr. James Berry. It's like, it's kind of funny because his doctor who signed the birth certificate, um, you know, like the woman who washed him told everyone and that's kind of how it got out. Um, But a lot of people asked his doctor like, oh, did you know? Oh, whatever. And he did say that, you know, he thought perhaps he was a hermaphrodite. but Mm -hmm. But the thing he mostly told people was, it's none of my business. So I don't care which... I know. There you go. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. Although speaking of people's business though, I really feel like if your last wish is that you want to be buried in the clothes <laughs> you died in without your body being washed, like yeah. why would people not listen to that? Is it that big of a deal that your body be washed before it's buried? When Maybe you're it's dead? just really ugly clothes. And they were all like, come on, he can't really want to be buried in these old pair of dockers with front pleating, right? So <laughs> <laughs> they were all like, we got to change him, you know, put him in his best or something. 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I like it. Excellent twist. I know. If only I hadn't slipped up with the he and she. You know, it's hard. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard when you're – what time is it? What, you know, in the storyline, which – Yeah, what am I talking about? Yeah. Well, Um, excellent episode. I feel feel good about it. I did – listen with my eyes closed, but I think I stayed, um, you know, awake, had some cognition. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's good. At least you're awake. (laughs) But I have to say, hopefully everyone listening stayed awake. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think we had two really interesting stories. People should be interested, like entertained. Are you not entertained? I have to say, I got a decent amount of feedback about our last episode and the Jane Austen. And thank you so much to everybody that either reached out in, you know, DMs to me or an email or just a phone call. And people loved it. Loved the fact that we just like... I loved it. Okay. I know. It's super (laughs) fun. So um, if you guys have more suggestions, um, send them our way. Our email is londonfogpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. And we'll talk to you later someday, maybe. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to get through moving and we're going to get through COVID. We're going to get through. We're going to endure. Do you see what I did there? (laughs) You did a lot. Yeah, yeah, it took me a minute. Sorry, I just got... Like, as you were talking, an email came into my email. Uh, you're not that, even focused anymore. No, because because my life dream – this is off topic, but my life dream since I was 11 has been to go to a Backstreet Boys concert. I finally got tickets. It was this August, and the email just came in that they're um, postponing it, which obviously all concerts are being postponed. But it's just like – Dream like, shattered. It, but yeah, now, you know, now like, all of our I've listeners know. I've been waiting know. so many years. So many years. <laughs> Try again next time. All right, guys. Shattered (laughs) dreams and happy set of stories. And we'll get back to you later. (laughs) Okay. Cheers. Cheers.